take a look at the stickers that are on laptops when you're at the coffee shop. You'd be every Octocat you see. If you're in recruitment mode, you should be handing them a card. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm again just going to go and make sure none of my team members have Octocat stickers on their laptop. <laughs> Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. Episode 18. Show notes are at pythontesting.net slash 18. In this episode, I interview Joe Stump, co-founder of Sprintly, to give the startup perspective to development and testing. Sprintly is a SaaS tool created to empower a more productive relationship between development teams and their management. That's directly from the Prescott page. The important bit for me in getting Joe on the show is that he's spent his career in startups. He's also been involved with hiring and talent acquisition for several startups. Joe has a view into the startup world that I do not. We talk about testing, continuous integration, code reviews, deployment, tolerance to defects, and how some of these differ between large companies and small companies. Then we get into hiring specifically finding and evaluating good engineers, and then getting them to be interested in working for you. If you want to ever grow your team size, you need to listen to this. This episode is sponsored by Rollbar. Rollbar is full-stack error tracking for all apps in any language. Visit rollbar.com slash test and code. So should we get started? Sure. You've been in Portland for a while, correct? Yeah, it's uh, April will be five years that my wife and I have been here. What are you doing right now? What's your your main? Um, what is your occupation? What are you working on? <laughs> That's a great question. What is my main occupation? Um, <clears throat> I'm doing a few things right now. I'm doing some uh, consulting uh, for Puppet Labs, working on kind of product and engineering process. Um, and then uh, I spend quite a bit of time still working on Sprintly. Um, which I bought back uh, in October with my business partner, April Dunford from Quick Left, and we're now operating it independently as a bootstrapped SaaS company. Okay. You've been mostly with startups for quite a long time. Uh, yeah, I've only worked in startups, actually. Uh, it's, Puppet is probably the largest company I've ever worked at, and I haven't worked, I've never worked at a company with more than about 120. Dig was the largest company I've worked at full-time, and they were about 100, 110 when I left there. I guess that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on is because I've only worked for really big companies, <laughs> even though even though they're, they're small teams within, within the large company. But that's I guess that's one of the things I was curious about is how the testing and quality assurance and all that stuff works for a small startup. I'm guessing you don't have a QA team for uh, Sprintly. <laughs> we are the QA team. Yeah, I've, I've worked at, I mean, I've worked at a couple of companies as a consultant that had very large formal QA teams and, and I would say much more um, rigid release processes. Uh, and that's definitely something that you'll notice as being a big difference between working at a startup uh, and working at a larger company. Um, larger companies will tend to have a whole teams dedicated to quality assurance. Uh, Puppet actually has like a QA team and then they have quality engineers and then they have people that work on uh, ensuring like more security kind of quality. Like they, they have like a number of teams that are focused solely on different pieces of the quality kind of puzzle. In addition to the things that I think an, an average startup developer would know about like unit tests and CI and that kind of stuff. They then have actual people that are focused specifically on making sure that security vulnerabilities are closed and that that the product isn't susceptible to them. Another team that will be working just on kind of UX and UI, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's pretty common in the bigger businesses. In the smaller ones, you know, we're um, in the smaller companies, they tend to um, not have those teams because they can't afford them. Um, in addition to that, I, what I found is the newer the product with the with less customers, the higher the tolerance is for bugs <laughs> and other kind of issues with the software. Um, and then as you get more and more customers, what I've found is as you get more and more customers and the product gets older, the product gets much more complicated, um, which increases the need for quality assurance and testing. And then you get a whole lot more customers as well. That um, And they have a much, as you get more and more paid customers on a product, you get less and less of a tolerance on um, 
on issues, on kind of quality issues. It's very easy to kind of throw out a new feature and say, it's beta, and customers are like, okay, this is probably going to be broken or not fully thought out. It's another thing to have a product that's five or ten years old and has, you know, like 4,000 paying customers, and you just throw something out there. They're going to expect uh, a much higher a much higher level of quality. Um, that will also change with price. You can't, like, launch a minimally viable product that costs $50,000 a year and is broken. So I found that that kind of as a product gets older – and as the customer base gets more mature and you're making more money off of it, that's when you'll see um, those kind of quality processes become implemented and hardened over time. So how many people are on are developing for Sprintly, for instance? Including part-timers. We've probably got three or four people that hack on it on any given month. Given like around that range, there's also products that are just you know one person doing it. Mm-hmm. And then going up to other small groups. They still want to be proud of what they do. So there's clearly, um, there's got to be test processes in place. Yeah, there's definitely test processes at those smaller things. And of course, we want to, we don't, nobody wants to ship buggy code and nobody wants to ship something that's broken. But the simple fact is on a team of three, like I often describe software development as the, as the process in which software bugs are produced. Like, like we will, no matter what, make bugs. And at the end of the day, we're still fallible humans which means that our testing and QA processes, if there's only three people, are not going to be what I would consider or you would consider robust and all-encompassing. So at Sprintly, we focus a lot on automation. So what are the things that, that, that we can automate? Because automation makes a small team look and feel a lot bigger. So we don't spend a lot of time. We do verify uh, code once we put it onto staging. We'll click through test features, do desk checks and stuff like that. But as far as kind of our testing approach, I would say it's 98% unit testing and 2% systems and integration testing. Um, and we do very little kind of tr- what what you and I would probably consider traditional QA, where a QA person has scripts and is kind of running through acceptance tests and stuff like that. Um, we just don't have the bandwidth for it. And at the end of the day, you kind of have to optimize on where can I add value in my testing with only three people. Uh, and when you look at kind of the total picture of like, I have to get this product out the door and I have to like make money from customers and I have to make something out of nothing. I will, I think if you were to look at all of startups, testing is probably one of the first things that gets cut from development. Okay. When you say uh, unit test, what do you mean? All right. Now I want to tell you about our sponsor, Rollbar. You've got a new app or a new feature for an existing app, and you want to get in in front of customers to get feedback. This is the lean startup way, right? But you don't want your customers to get too frustrated with buggy software. There's a balance between how much time you test something and how fast you get it out the door. So what do you do? As well as having you and your team dog food your own app, you have automated tests that focus on your core functionality. What about the stuff you haven't tested? Those lines of code, those else clauses and such that say should never get here. Chances are some wacky way of using your system can get to that line, but don't stress about it. Get your app in front of customers faster and capture the problems when they happen with the full information on how the users got there so it's easier to debug and fix. You do this with Rollbar. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster with a lot less noise. It's easy, easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments within eight minutes. Rollbar works with all major languages and frameworks, including Python. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow even, send error alerts to Slack or HipChat, or automatically create new issues in GitHub, Jira, Pivotal Tracker, and more. It's used by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Instacart, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. So you're in good company. The folks at Rollbar have put together an offer for test and code listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash test and code. Sign up and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked for free. Thanks for Rollbar for sponsoring the show. You can thank them too, two ways. You can go to rollbar.com slash test and code and check out what they have to offer. Also, you can use Twitter to thank both them and me at the same time. Say something like, thanks at Rollbar for sponsoring at test podcast. I know it sounds corny, but it'll make me feel good. Okay, let's get back to this interview and pull out some more great info from Joe Stump. If you've ever 
our part of hiring. Make sure you listen to this entire episode. There are some gems in there. When you say a unit test, what do you mean? A unit test for me is um, a a piece of code that uniquely and discreetly tests one other piece of code without any systems being online. That test should run 100% offline. This is also why I like writing unit tests on airplanes, because <laughs> they force me to write good fixtures and good mocking. Um, but for instance, a, a unit test for me would check that if I pass something improper into this function, it will throw a validation error in this partic- for this particular thing. What would not be a unit test for me is when a user goes to this page and clicks this button, this DOM element shows up. That okay. would not that would not be an, that would probably be more like a an integration or a systems test, particularly if it requires a backing service in order to run. Um, I don't like my unit, my unit test to be interdependent on anything other than exercising the specific line of code I'm looking to exercise. Okay, so you really are doing um, isolated, trying to just test the code that you're writing at the time. And I'm really am doing what? I mean, there's different flavors of unit test. From uh, I'm just isolate testing one function at a time, and and that function isn't calling anything. I'm going to mock out all of its dependencies and other people. Me included, that uh, I, I might try to isolate the external dependencies, but if it's code that my, me or my team controls, that's fair game in a unit test. Mm. Yeah, I think I, you know. There's definitely when you get down into that level, it's it's pretty. I think a little bit squishy and fungible as to kind of which way you can go, and I think it's totally appropriate for that to be made team by team. Um, we mock out quite a bit of stuff, including some internals. And that really kind of depends on case by case. But let's say we had a, a method, just one method on a, on a, on a model, and it um, raised a validation error, had an if statement, and then uh, an if else statement, and then independently of that had, had a couple different return values. I would expect there to be a test that exercises the validation error being thrown, um, test for each of the EFL statements, and then also a test that the return codes are all sane. So... My, my, this is one thing also that I think a lot of people skip in engineering processes is that they, you know, you and I might look at that code and you and I would both say, uh, you can't just write one method or one test for this method. You have to write five. Um, and then other people might not even look at the tests. So code reviewing tests is actually pretty important and making sure that, that the unit tests are actually, you know, exercising the different kind of goblins in the code. Um, but also making sure that people are kind of just approaching testing appropriately. Uh, I don't like to see the one thing that I, I try to avoid is, is big monolithic tests where, where, you know, they might make one test and it actually does exercise all those things, but there's like five different asserts in that single test. Um, so that, that's kind of the, my general rules of the road. I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't expect a hundred percent of the internal code mocked up, but depending on kind of, what needed to be exercised and where I could see, I could see cases where they would need to do that. Okay. And what, um, what language are you writing in? Um, we predominantly write in Python and, and JavaScript. Uh, we probably have, I don't know, three, three to four, th- probably 33,000 to 3,500 tests across the front end and back end. The majority of which are in JavaScript land. Um, most of our code is, is definitely moving towards JavaScript. I think like many uh, many one-page front-end applications these days, our Python layer is turning into a glorified session store in JSON serialization layer. Um, <laughs> so we do a lot less, we do actually a lot less coding unless we need a new API endpoint on the back end at this point. Um, but yeah, most of it's uh, Python, JavaScript. Python's all in Django. We use um um, the Django test, testing tools for that. Uh, and then in JavaScript, we use um, Mocha Chai uh, along with um, Babel. And then it's all implemented mostly in React and then old stuff in Backbone. Okay, so the tests for the JavaScript, they're not going through, are they going through a web browser then? Or do they, they hook in some other way? Um, Mocha Chai runs in PhantomJS, which is just you know pretty typical uh, like command line unit testing stuff. Okay. 
We can run them in the browser as well. You can run Mocha tests in both browser and command line. Uh, and then we do use, uh, we have some smoke tests that, that we are not currently exercising via CI for cost reasons um, for sauce labs that are all written in Python using the page object pattern uh, and web driver on Selenium. Okay. Which is a giant steaming pile of dog doo doo, but it is what we, it is what it is. What is the steaming pile of dog doo doo? Uh, selenium? Selenium, yeah. And I don't even think it's, I should be fair. It's not really probably Selenium's fault because browsers are just like turtles all the way down internally. But I don't know of a single shop that has a robust, stable, fast Selenium testing platform. And I've worked at many dozens of shops with Selenium tests. Most people these days are probably begrudgingly have a few Selenium tests in to check things like login and checkout flows and stuff. But a lot of people are really pushing for real proper unit testing at the code level these days in JavaScript. Okay. When you're ready to push a feature to um, live, um, what are the, what are the pro- steps you go through? Does it? How do you make sure it's okay to get give it to the customers? Well, I don't write any bugs, so this is this is not a, really an issue for me. <laughs> um, so the process is we use feature branches for everything. Um, we use Git Flow, the the kind of Git Flow methodology. Uh, we use the Git Flow plugin as well, which is pretty nice. So we have. What that means is, is we have two branches, two, two quote, quote unquote kind of blessed branches. Develop is our main branch. Master is production. Um, any feature branches cut off of develop, <clears throat> uh, you do your feature development in that feature branch. Issue a PR. Um, we, uh, are, are, we use these things called uh, PR templates. So every pull request that comes into Sprintly has a very specific template that asks questions like, um, you know, what does this PR do? Background, what ticket is this reference? Are there any screenshots we should be looking at? How do I manually test it? Um, and then a checklist of things that every developer needs to, the developers and the, ver- and the reviewers need to verify. Things like, is there appropriate test coverage? Do we need to write a blog post about this? Does the knowledge base need to be updated? Things like that. Um, once the test pass, we use CircleCI tests run on every pull, uh, on every pull request. Uh, once the tests have gone green, um, it gets reviewed. And if that goes well, we uh, merge it into develop. Now, develop will accrue features over time. So over a week, we might merge in two or three of these, these PRs. Uh, and then at that point, we'll cut a release. Uh, Git flow makes that real easy. Uh, it's just Git flow, release start, uh, creates a release branch. And then you can uh, finish the release branch and close it out which creates a tag in, in Sprintly or on GitHub uh, for whatever version you're about to release. Um, it merges it in with master. Once things get merged in with master, Circle then kicks off again. Obviously, it runs the test all over again, makes sure everything's okay. Uh, once those pass, we get a build artifact. Um, we actually get a build artifact every time tests pass. Uh, that allows us to independently deploy PRs and, uh, and whatnot to our various environments. Um, <clears throat> so... After that, we have a little fabric script that just deploys. Um, so you just tell it which build number you want deployed to which environment. And fabric goes out and fetches the builds, installs it on all the different uh, app servers that are in that environment, um, and then runs migrations and enables the build. Okay. But that's a, the, the running of the fabric, is that a, uh, um, an individual person like maybe you that says, yeah, I want this release to go live? It currently is. Uh, it would be pretty trivial to wire that into um, into Circle. We just we just haven't yet. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, actually, that was pretty detailed. Thanks. Yeah. The code reviews is that you just do those with uh, the pull requests and look at code changes, or yeah, we just uh, we do a line by line on the on the PR. If it's a like a really big thing, like right now we're building this new uh, five columns. What we what we've been referring to internally as the five columns view, and it's really just a giant like pivotal tracker style board with some really robust uh, querying interfaces and things that that we don't have elsewhere in the product. Um, that one we have a number of times independently. Like I was saying, each one of our every time it goes through Circle. Circle CI, if it's successful, we create a build artifact. And our build process, our deploy process is separate from the 
the, the build process so we can independently deploy whatever we want, wherever we want. So like five board is, a, it's a big deal. Like we're, we're really kind of, it's, it's basically a rewrite of the front end that we're releasing as a single feature and then plan on porting everything over. Um, and so we've, we've deployed that to staging independently a couple times, uh, to do manual testing, um, to do kind of, you know, just general kicking the tires and whatnot. Uh, so that's something that, that, that we do for, for really big meaty features. But otherwise when we do the reviews, um, we either test it locally if we need to, or we just, uh, look at the code. Are you involved with all the code reviews to make sure uh, of actually just everything? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, sprintly small enough now that, that I can, uh, I can totally hop in on all the, on all the code reviews. I'm not probably as proficient in EMCA six as I should be to review all of the, the new JavaScript stuff, but I've got a pretty good handling at this point on FL statements, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I try to look at all the code reviews. Um, I'm still heavily involved in the, particularly the architecture process and the product design process. Uh, the development side of things, I try to stay in the Python land where I can do the least amount of damage. <laughs> okay. And is, uh, is Python your uh, most comfortable language? Uh, these days, yeah. I mean, I, I've coded in all sorts of languages. I spent the first decade coding all in PHP and then uh, got real angry at the language and left uh, for Python in maybe 2009. I've been coding Python, Python and JavaScript full-time now, and um, that's where I, I would say Python probably I'm most comfortable with, but I'm happy to sling some JavaScript if that's what's needed. And I, I want to ask you uh, about the Sprintly tool itself, but... Um, before we get to that, I know that Sprintly is a tool for Agile teams and other stuff, but there is the word Agile that shows up on the Sprintly blog several times. I guess, what does the word Agile mean to you guys? I think the, the word Agile kind of at, at its most fundamental level means that, that you work in an iterative fashion and are reactive to, um, to stakeholder input. And now stakeholders can be all sorts of people. And I think that that sometimes gets muddied when people talk about agile. They always think about like the people who are paying us, but sometimes that could be the business or people within the business as well. Um, but I think those are the two things that I've seen in every shop that has, uh, has really been successful with agile is they have very clear open lines of communication with, with stakeholders around the business and, they work in small, tight iterations where they're like, okay, we did this, now now what next? Okay, we did this, now what next? And that conversation is happening at a really good cadence um, and with a lot of transparency. So there's all sorts of different process paradigms you can shove into that pocket. But at the end of the day, whether you're using traditional Agile Scrum with sprints or you're using something like Kanban or some sort of chaotic mess in the middle, you, you really, at the end of the day, you have a group of people that are making stuff at a very specific cadence. And at the end of each of those iterations, they're responding to new inputs from the stakeholders. Uh, th that's what I think of when I think of Agile. I think of iterations and rapid response to stakeholders. I think that's a good definition. How does Sprintly fit into, uh, what, what is it, and how does it fit into an Agile workflow? Sure. Sprintly is a, a tool for tracking software development ostensibly you know what i think what makes us different is we've always started and always had the the kind of thesis that the stakeholders need to be participating in the tool alongside the developers and i think if you look at sprintly and compare it to um you know like a pivotal tracker or a jira or 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 a rally uh you'll see you'll see that we've built a tool that isn't just for developers you know the ui and the ux are we try to keep pretty focused on being accessible and usable for everybody. Uh, and we try to answer the questions that business folks are most interested in knowing, um, which really comes down to what are they working on right now? And when can we reasonably expect some of this stuff to come online? Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, when it comes to kind of like our thesis, that's probably one of the biggest shifts over other tools. Other tools are kind of like, that's the black box where I put the stuff that I want made. And someday the black box will like poop that thing out and I'll have it. Um, Sprintly really tries to be a more of a transparent box that you put your ideas into and can kind of follow along as they, as they make their way through the sausage factory. 
Okay. I was playing with it a little bit. I signed up for one of the, like the free trial and, uh, it's actually pretty cool. I was, I was playing with it with like the workflow of, um, having, I guess, multiple columns for different stages of, of an item. Mm-hmm. Now that'd be more scrum. Like there's a Kanban portion to the Sprintly as well. Is that? Yeah, we definitely have a Kanban board and, and you're free to use, uh, con- use it very similar to a Kanban thing. Um, I think one of the things, because we focused kind of really on making an accessible software tool, we also, one of the things that's a little bit different is like we don't have, it's not a very, it's it's not a very convoluted kind of robust Kanban thing. We don't have work in, work in progress limits. We don't have like official swim lanes and stuff like that. But uh, as far as putting cards on a board and watching them go through the, you know, watching them go through the, uh, the different phases, that's there. You can group uh, tags or you can group items by tag and, and follow like progress. So if you look at like the progress bars for each tag, it will tell you things like there's four people working on this project. Uh, you know, they're about 30% complete. And we think that based on their velocity, there's about 10 days left of work in this thing. So you can track sprints, milestones, really anything that you can put a classifier on, you can track uh, via the, the, Sprintly, the Sprintly progress feature. Okay, and is the velocity based on a point system like other Scrum processes? Or yeah, so we use uh, t-shirt sizes on the front end, but we actually convert those to Fibonacci on the back end, and then do uh, velocity calculations based on a three-week moving average on the back end. Okay, yeah, some of this stuff is also in flux. When we release the new board. We're going to allow people to enter in their own velocity, uh, and then we'll also have. Um, uh, we'll also be introducing at some point later this year the ability to switch so that you can just use points rather than t-shirt sizes. And you were you were mentioning something about um, five column. Is that is that right? That's that's right. So if you log into our tool now, we have a dashboard which shows. Uh, so those for those listening, Sprintly tracks. Uh, work items, and they can be either in someday, which is a pile of stuff that we hope to do someday, backlog, which is basically the things we've agreed that we're going to work on work on next and have been prioritized, current, which is what everybody's working on, um, complete things that are done but not merged in or not fully reviewed or whatever, and then accepted. Um, <clears throat> so the dashboard was meant to be kind of what are my people working on right now? So it doesn't show someday and it doesn't show accepted. We had a different view that was organizer that kind of showed two columns at a time. And it's just been confusing for a lot of our folks. And a lot of people just want one big board, like with all of the statuses and all of the cards across all of their projects. Uh, so we're going to be releasing that um, in beta form, probably in the next week or two uh, invite beta. We'll start letting customers in slowly over time uh, over the next month. And then probably we'll have a full wide release by middle or end of April. Okay. And that touches on something too on testing that I think is important, particularly for really small companies, which is feature flags. (laughs) The ability to kind of roll out a feature slowly is, is your final, I think fail safe for kind of QA. So we have this major rewrite. It's not tested as well as we'd want it to, but we have paying customers that are literally beating down our door right now. So our response to this is, okay, well, we're not done with this yet. You know it's beta software. We're going to allow you in one at a time. And then if something blows up, it's only blown up for one or two customers behind the scenes and not all couple thousand of our customers. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how you do that. Do you have like two different servers running then? No, we, um, uh, I've done it a number of ways. So one of the ways that can, that it can be done is there's consistent hashing algorithms. And so what you'll do is you use a consistent hashing algorithm to decide if a person is, is, uh, with is under a certain threshold. So you'll say, I want 10% of my users to see this. And then the consistent hashing algorithm will figure out if they fall into that 10% or not. Um, we did that a lot at dig with really big new infrastructure. So if we created new backend infrastructure and we didn't know how it was going to handle under load, we would say, okay, well, we're going to turn this on for 2% of users. And then, and then ops would just watch the MRTG graphs and would slowly dial that percent number up via config. The way we do it at Sprintly is much more 
brain dead simple, which is we just every account uh, has a beta flag and we just hit that. And if your beta flag is true, then we'll show you some other stuff. Um, and if it's not, then we don't show you anything. Okay. Okay. That's cool. I guess that works. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely, it definitely saved our butts a few times at dig when we were rolling out new infrastructure that, you know, you get it up to 10% and it'd be fine. And then you'd try and up it to 15% and servers would start falling over. Uh, and it's also a cool way to keep a feature alive for some people to kind of placate that. So it's Sprintly, it's a paid product. And every once in a while, we'll get a large customer that's like, we really need this thing. And we'll say, well, it's not done yet. And they're like, we don't, we don't care. Just give us the half done thing for now. Otherwise, we're leaving. <laughs> so it can, be, it can be useful for, for retaining customers, too. It's like I, we can throw stuff out there and turn it on for you know, just a customer or two. Okay. Now, uh, moving on to talent, I know that you, um, you've had hired people for yourself, of course, but you've also been consultant for um, helping talent acquisition. I I don't even know what questions to ask, but I'm I occasionally find myself needing to hire people, and that's a painful process. So, can you help me out some? <laughs> yes, um, yeah, hiring is 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 very difficult, particularly these days. Um, you know, I I was just reading an article recently that I think uh, fresh college grad comps at Facebook and Google from if you're from a top twenty five school are well north of one hundred and fifty k. Um, and, uh, I don't think we're producing high quality engineers at anywhere near the rate that we need to be. Um, so over the years, my, my, uh, my hiring practices have actually changed quite a bit. I think 10 years ago I would have went out and I would have tried to find as many of the highest encoders as I could find. And these days things are a little bit different depending particularly depending on what kind of product you're building now for most consumer and SaaS products that you're going to build you are probably going to use a pass like heroku or you know docker or something like that you're probably going to use a web framework of some sort um you're probably going to use a cloud provider for your database and really what this means is (laughs) That a lot of the hard stuff's taken care of. It's taken care of for us now, and so now what I need is I need developers who can ship and can ship very quickly. Um, the the very difficult problems of scale have been largely solved for companies who are just looking to go to market. If you have less than say, I don't know, fifty thousand paying customers, the likelihood that you need to run your own infrastructure is very small. So what I look for these days is I look for people who are interested in the problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, One of the things I've noticed in my years of being a manager is if you put somebody on a project that they have no interest in doing, uh, it will probably not be done very well. Um, So I look for people that are interested. I would not hire somebody at Sprintly who's not interested in software development processes, who's not interested in collaboration, things like that. Um, the other thing that I spend a lot of time looking for these days is, is initiative and work ethic. Um, I've met some exceptionally bright, talented developers that for the life of me, I couldn't get focused to work on a shippable feature to save my life. Uh, now I could be just a bad manager. I don't know, but, um, I've definitely found that I cannot teach work ethic or initiative. There's some kernel that gets placed by somebody long before I find them that, you're either you either like working and are interested in the problem and are a self-starter or you're not. Uh, so a lot of my hiring these days focuses on how I can find people who are interested in what I'm working on and who are interested in shipping. Uh, usually the people that are most interested in shipping tend to be the people that have high, high work ethic and high initiative. So <clears throat> these days when I, when I you know, go for interviews, I spend a lot of my t- time trying to suss out how much time they spend hacking on things outside of work and what are those things that they're hacking on? Um, I get really worried when I meet a developer that develops, you know, nine to five every day. And when they go home at five, they close the laptop and then, you know, work on something totally different that their passion lies outside of tech at the, at that point. Um, as far as tech interview goes, I don't spend a ton of time really on, on like deep dive 
technical questions. I, I definitely don't hire for um, a specific skill set. You know, I, like I, you know, I know from our our previous discussions, like you're a phenomenal Python engineer, and I'm pretty certain that you would be a phenomenal anything engineer if you had a little bit of time to to learn the other programming language. Um, the reason for that is I found over time that if you hire for a specific skill set, you'll end up with people who all they see is Python or Rails nails everywhere, right? Yeah. And, and I really want developers that, I, you know, I, I, hate, I hate dictating answers to developers because I kind of feel like that's their job is to figure out what the answers are. Um, so, you know, I, I like to be agnostic in many things. And one of those things is definitely technology. Like if you tell me that Java is a hundred times faster pulling jobs off the queue than Python is, then fine, we'll use Java. Like I, I'm not, I have a, a few concerns around new technology, but at the end of the day, like what's the best tool for the job, right? Yeah. So, so those are really kind of the things I look for. I look for people that, you know, are, are kind of polyglots as far as like they're, they'll use whatever, whatever technology is necessary to solve the problem. I look for people that are interested in the problem, work ethic and initiative. So if you if you get those three things, then I you know I kind of feel, I kind of feel I can make anyone into a pretty good engineer. But I I can't I can't teach work ethic and initiative. I can't teach you to care. You know I can't teach you to be open minded about technology choices like those things. I, I don't I particularly don't have time to teach you those things when I only have five people on my team. Well, how, how do you I mean what, do you have, how do you ask how do you find out about initiative for instance? The big red flag for me on initiative is if I go to your GitHub page and it's the graph is all white, you haven't opened, you haven't started any of your own repos. Uh, you know, none of them are, are public. Uh, and I ask you like, you know, what are you hacking on in your off hours? And you say nothing. What's the, what are the latest things in tech that have you, you know, excited? And you're like, I don't really pay attention. Like these are all things that are very clear indicators to me that you're not really a self-starter. You're not out there actively, you know, technology, you basically have to keep, particularly as a developer, you have to keep up to date every 18 months. Basically everything you knew is worthless, right? Because of Moore's law. So like 18 months ago, if you took a skill set 18 months ago in JavaScript, it's completely out of date. Rails 4 is released and they released a whole bunch of new crap around that. Rails, you know, Rails stuff is out of date. They released new migrations in the last like 18 or 24 months in, in Python and Django. That's out of date. So if you're not keeping up to date consistently and aggressively, that's a really clear sign of a lack of initiative to me. Um, yeah, what, what if um, somebody happens to be like, I mean, I guess you could probably tell that by discussing it. But if, if, they're, if their job that they're particularly currently working on actually hits all that stuff... Um, then they wouldn't need to be doing that on their free time. I find that people who are hackers through and through are, are still doing this. They're, they're still hacking on something like they've got, maybe they're building drones with their kids on the weekends, or maybe they're doing home automation or, yeah, you know, okay. I mean, shit, I, I would take, I would take somebody going out and, and just opening the hood of their car and hacking on an engine. Like show me that you are, continuing your engineering education day in and day out beyond your work. Because what I've found is extremely rare that somebody's crossing off every single thing that is interesting to them at their job, particularly if they're like a true blue kind of like chaotic hacker type person. Now the the traits that you described sound great. So how do I find these people? Where are they? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, I look for people uh, in places where people like me go. So uh, the places that I like to go and do this kind of stuff, meetups is a great place to go and find folks like this. Um, obviously, GitHub and different uh, – one of the things that, that I'll let your audience in on is I go and I look at pull requests that have been issued by non-members of projects that I use <laughs> on okay. GitHub. Okay. So if you have, you know, if Sally issued a pull request to Django and she, that was her first pull request and she was not a member of the core team there, Sally may get an email from me. (laughs) Um, You can do a location search on GitHub for people. I've done that before. Um, God, what else have I done? 
I've walked up to people, uh, take a look at the stickers that are on laptops when you're at the coffee shop. You'd be every Octocat you see, if you're in recruitment mode, you should be handing them a card. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm gonna, again, just going to go and make sure none of my team members have Octocat stickers on their laptop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you see them, I might say hi to them. <laughs> if I see them, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's you know, recruiting is something that you always have to be doing. Like just always, like every meetup you can go to, you know, there should always be a dot dot dot. By the way, we're hiring somewhere in your slide deck. Every conversation you have, um, you know, etc. Like like that's where they hang out. And and the one thing that I that I want to emphasize. For people that are looking for engineers, really good engineers are not throwing their resume up on, on you know, Craigslist or whatever. Like those engineers usually have jobs. They usually have jobs that they like fairly well. Um, and, you know, they call it recruiting for a reason. Like you have to actively like get them to leave where they're at. Um, so and that's probably the hardest part of recruiting truly good engineers is like, it's fairly easy to find the good engineers. Once you find that, once you like start mingling at meetups and go to conferences and, you know, start trolling GitHub. But there's then the secondary phase, which is like, Oh, that guy works at, at Heroku and he works in their back end. He's probably making 175 grand a year. And that, that I find is, is, probably the, the hardest part of recruiting is once you do find those good engineers, they're probably at a job that they like and they're probably making really good money. So how do you convince them to come work with you? Um, and that's, I think is where a lot of the more like soft skills around pitching can come into play. Uh, some things I see that companies do that regularly kind of screw this up. One is they'll send URI out to the meetups and we'll find all these great engineers. And then they, and then the company will hand them off to a recruiter and, eh. That's a really bad answer. Um, I really don't think that personally, I don't think particularly given the, the reputation, whether it's earned or not, the recruiters have in the tech space that you should send recruiters after engineers at all. I don't, I, don't, I just don't, I think the people that you're going to get through a recruiter are not going to be the type of people that you're generally going to want to hire. Well, those people are already getting tagged by recruiters through LinkedIn all, all once a week anyway. Yeah, it's uh yeah, exactly. Um so what I like to do is I like to send my smartest engineer after them. Um oh. and and I like to say and I know this is some of this stuff is probably going to come off as me being like a terribly manipulative weirdo, but like I will be like, "Hey, uh why don't you go talk to them about, you know, something that we have a problem with and then once you're having coffee with them, tell them about all the cool stuff we're working on." <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. That's cool. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can approach somebody that has a job that they like that it doesn't feel like they're being recruited, right? Like you can just say, we're working on some really cool stuff. Let's go out and have coffee. Like I want to hear about what you're working on and we can talk about some of the cool stuff. Don't ever talk about the product though. Talk about like, I mean, as an engineer, what they're going to want to know is, are you using the coolest, latest container services? Are you using the coolest, latest automation? Which frameworks are you using? Like, have you had to fork them? You know, like, I don't know. There's, there's things like that. And, and so when I find myself, once I have like one of those good engineers on the line, the things that I'm pitching them is like, we have an environment at Sprintly that's very focused on shipping code that we can be proud of. We like making a product that feels good. We, we make a product for people like us. And these are things that, that, resonate with engineers more so than you know like an average recruiter would be like oh well, we just raised 10 million in venture back funding it's like well engineers understand the concept of burn so you know all you've really done is told me that there's unrealized risk in this company by saying they've raised a bunch of money so tell me you know like uh tell me what are the cool things you're working on who are the cool people that i get to work with that's another thing that i think a lot of companies don't pitch as well like it's it just seems really shocking to me like uh dropbox should just have billboards of guido like all over silicon valley that's like like python the guy who invented it works here yeah totally <laughs> right yeah. like so 
those are those are the things that I try to focus on. Once once you get over the like, okay, this person seems to be the type of person that we want to be, you know, want want to be around our team, then it becomes a job of like convincing them why they should come work with you, right? Yeah. Um, and what I found is is that the the two things that people move jobs for most frequently are the people and the problems, right? So if if those two things or you can get those two things to resonate around that pitch, um, uh, the the second part of recruiting becomes comes quite a bit easier. One of the other interesting things is uh, there's interesting problems to be solved at companies that you wouldn't think that need your skills. Yep. Like uh, like hardware companies. Well, they any hardware that's interesting at all has like half of the cost is software. So there's there's a bunch of software developers there, but people coming out of um, uh, school right away that are you know aren't going to look at a hardware company seriously. I don't think, and that's too bad. Yeah, I think. I, this is this is definitely something that that uh, that I've seen a lot as well. You know, like there's <clears throat> there are some companies out there that have some just some tremendously interesting technical problems out there, but you know they are not either traditionally known as tech companies by software engineers, or they they uh, suffer from what you're talking about, which on the hardware side, which when people think of hardware companies, they're like, oh, well, they don't. They don't need software engineers, but you and I both know they need a lot of software engineers. Um, And the same is true for basically every company at this point. Any company, you know, Mark Andreessen wrote that thing a while ago that was like uh, um, software is eating the world, right? And I think I read recently that uh, um, like Goldman Sachs has like 16,000 computer engineers. Like they're a bank, and they have almost as many engineers as Google, right? Like John Deere probably has a, a thousand engineers or hundreds of engi- computer engineers now. And you're like, well, what do lawnmowers need them for? The latest, uh, one of the latest C-class Mercedes has more lines of code than our fighter jets do, right? Like Elon Musk is pushing software updates over the air to cars to alter their like stance in response to like accidents that happen in the real world. That everything I just said is way, way, way cooler than shipping websites on Heroku. <laughs> way more interesting, way cooler problems. Yeah, and I, you and know, I, I really hope that deploy to cars has a really good acceptance test process around it. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mention that because I, I always joke. I, I this is like my long-standing computer programming joke. I refuse to code on anything that has to do with uh, money or people's lives. Like I will never be doing embedded stuff like system software on like you know medical devices. I will never be writing backend systems for banks because it's just like I I just know how terrible of a software developer I am. Really, at the end of the day, like you know, it's like you ever you remember that uh, from Office Space when they go and get the they get the the receipt out yeah. and it's off by like a couple hundred grand and they get into this fight. And Michael, who's the engineer who programmed that part of it, was like, I'm always missing some mundane detail like that. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's me. Only it would be like, Joe, why are all the rockets going to the wrong city? And I'll be like, ah, buffer overflow. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's actually it's interesting. I mean, that's a, something that I, um, I I do work in an industry where. I have a saying, I don't know if it's a wide, widespread saying, but wrong data is always worse than crashing. I'd much rather have the software crash than tell the user the wrong thing. Um, because yeah. I'm writing stuff that's it's similar. I mean, it's basically like a ruler. It's a measurement instrument. So um, if, if, if I put my ruler down, I'd really rather have all the numbers disappear than have, have it tell me the wrong length. Right, so, right. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is interesting when you think about, uh, the state of art, state of the art for testing is, is not that state of the art and, uh, and having that applied to deploys to cars and stuff. Um, wow. And interesting. And, but you were, it was funny how you brought up Goldman Sachs, um, and my pest. So this is the same thing. Like heart, I'm sure that financial companies get the same thing that hardware companies do as well. Cause I think of like Goldman Sachs and I think, Okay, well, how many of those people are not working in Fortran, though? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, I, well, so it's I, I can I can tell you what they're working in. Well, it depends, really, but 
a lot of those people, particularly at hedge funds and Goldman Sachs and those investment banks, are doing some of the most insane programming you've ever heard of. Like I had a I had a buddy that worked on Wall Street. I've had a, a number of buddies that have worked on Wall Street, and they traditionally work in two areas. One of them is they're they're both pretty related. Uh, one of them is high frequency tra- trading, and the other one is algorithmic trading. And uh, the interesting things about the, particularly the high frequency trading, is that you have to make trade decisions in microseconds. Like you have to actually like read the data, make an analytic decision, and then make it make or make or not make a trade within single digit to you know low double digit microseconds. And I was talking to a buddy of mine who had moved out west uh, to work in traditional kind of startup Silicon Valley, and I asked him, I was like, why, uh, you know. Why'd you leave? Like, because I knew he was making a truckload of cash on on Wall Street, and he was like, "Well, uh, I got to the point where I had to I had to write my own implementation of file descriptors on Linux so that I could shave a couple microseconds off of this <laughs> stupid trade call thing that he was programming." And he's like, "That's that's when I knew I had to leave." So the stuff that they're doing in the high frequency trade, they're doing things like co-locating servers literally in the rack right next door to the New York Stock Exchange servers so that they can record, you know, servers or record things faster. And they have to like optimize um, algorithms and they have to, there are a lot of people that are hacking um, on Linux, like the actual Linux OS in high frequency trading shops and and cloud shops. Um, My buddy has done a lot of Linux driver coding uh, for, for a large cloud provider. So yeah, there's there's really interesting hard technical problems all over the place. Um, it's just a matter of whether the the market is supporting us working on those <laughs> those things. Well, Joe, I'm like really enjoying the conversation, but I think we've uh, hit our limit um, time wise. Continue this discussion over beers and not record it sometime. So yeah, for sure. Um, anyway, that's it. Thanks a, a ton for uh, for coming on. Is there uh, I guess this isn't it. Um, is there something you want to mention that we haven't talked about already? No, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, I, the one thing I do want to get, the one message I do want to get across is I didn't mean anything that I said to to mean that you shouldn't be testing early on and that you shouldn't do QA work. But uh, but I do understand if if the costs for proper QA are too high for, for your small product. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so do you, I guess I will bring this back. Do you, do you think I, I, I did bring you on mostly because you have an, a view into startups that I don't. Do you think that your view on that, this is um, typical among startups? You know, I've, I've seen a lot of different startups and I think that, that it is probably pretty typical that they lean heavily on, on automated tests over, over proper kind of what, what we would consider proper QA and QE. Um, but I also think that's absolutely a reality of constrained resources. Okay. All right. Um, cool. Um, I think that's it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem. Have a good one. Thanks to Joe for talking with me. Thanks for Patreon supporters for their amazing support of the show. Go to pythontesting.net slash support to become a Patreon supporter and make sure that I keep producing these episodes. And a big thanks to Rollbar, who provide full-stack error tracking for all apps in all languages. Visit rollbar.com slash testandcode to get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. Thanks for listening.